This week inside the Juno reactor, it's a pleasure to welcome a percussionist, a drummer, a friend, Greg Ellis. He has performed and recorded with artists from all over the world, including the great Zaki Hussein, the great Ayata Marrera, Kodo drummers Mickey Hart's Planet Drum. He's recorded for all the great film composers, all of which you would have heard or seen at the cinema. What sets him apart for me is his playing can be as furious as a street fighter and as delicate as a brushstroke. He is a very unique percussionist and I hope you enjoy our conversation Inside the Juno Reactor. Welcome to Inside the Juno Reactor, Greg. It's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, pleasure to be here. It's been a long time, so... since we actually have worked oh, physically together. it's it's been a long time i, I know we, we talked a few times here and there but i can't i'm trying to remember the last time was it the dj gig out here that you did could that have been all oh, the yeah. way back to then <laughs> when when we did that live improv remember that one <laughs> up in calabasas or something that was really funny was. wasn't it <laughs> and that singer and there was that great girl singer who just who is the sister of the promoter that's right and she was wicked. My sister sings, or my girlfriend could sing it, but she she nailed it. It was really that was she's a, fun a really good gig. singer. I've seen her do other stuff as well. Yeah, but I sort of want to front load this with sort of like maybe we go back to, I think when we met, which was pretty close to when the Matrix sort of stuff happened. I think from my memory, I just worked with Steve Stevens. Right. I came out to California, and we met at the Standard Hotel. Was that right? Yeah. That's right. And then we came back to my place and, and sat up in the studio when it was upstairs here. And uh, I think we listened. I played a little bit. I think you had your flute or something. You played a little bit or something. I don't know what, but 
I played a few. We hung a bit. But yeah, we came back here afterwards. I think I picked you up there and we came back. But okay. it was right after you did Pistolero. Okay. So it was or, like... Or even we're writing Pistolero at that time. I don't even know if you'd finished it yet. So then you called me and you were you, you had set up at uh, Paramore, which was like walking into the Matrix, wasn't it? That whole setup there was just incredible. Well, I, but, I remember that like with... Which is sort of like Mabee's podcast reminding me of like... I remember saying to Mabee, you know, do you fancy coming and working on this film called The Matrix? And he yeah. was like, <laughs> he was like, no, I, I want to look after my chickens. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, that quote. And that just like embodies Mabee. You know? I don't, so I don't know if any of his chickens ever survived. Oh or, my God. I think, he, I think he built three houses and they all fell down because none of them had foundations. Oh God! I'm <laughs> trying to imagine his life there, but yeah, but that was so he. But he he didn't come out for uh, for Reloaded. He he came out for Revolution. No, and I was sort of panicking because I was thinking, well, percussion is quite an important part. So I immediately got on the phone to Ayata Moreira, who was also working for B and W. And I know the first one was the Indian guy, the Masters of Percussion. Well, not Zakir Hussain. Yeah, Zakir Hussain. Oh, you did you actually? Oh, wow! I didn't know you actually approached Zakir. He was my first thought. I'm sure he would be, but yeah. <laughs> and then uh, someone said to me, oh, he's 10 grand just to get out of bed. Right. And I thought, ooh. Right. So I thought, I'll ring up Ayato. Ayato said, no, I'm going off on, on tour. And um, then the studio said to me, as I was progressing through this stuff, why don't you use that guy who, you know, the really famous percussionist in the LA orchestras? What was, remember what his name was? Was that Mike Fisher? I think it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was the he was like he's the the generation above me, but like that incorporated all the world music stuff and everything. So yeah. like we were already just weren't used to that, you know, because everything was new to us at that time. Right, I remember. And yeah. uh, with Zig, I mean Zig, we had an old head there, you know, who's brilliant at it. But I remember that guy turning up with a massive Arctic lorry, pretty much of percussion. And his roadies would come in with all these massive flight cases with shakers and things and massive taiko drums. Right. And me and Greg, the engineer, sitting back going, this doesn't work. <laughs> it was so delicate, you know. It was. It just wasn't the Mabi that we were looking for. And so when yeah. I think I then rang you up and you came down with a bag, <laughs> a bag of things, <laughs> and it just worked. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to be on in that kind of small group of a list of players to be considered, you know, but I think with any of those players, it's... Well, it's only because you came to the standards. It, it was more than just needing tabla or Latin percussion or something. And one of the first tracks we did was Mona Lisa Overdrive, where I got on kit. And, and so the, to incorporate that and have access with the kit... And then the Nagaras and then the specialty sound with exactly, what we yeah. already done. It gelled so quickly, I remember. But that's when you got the sense of a kind of even expanding your initial ideas of percussion, I think, and really made it, I don't know, a different kind of driving force. Certainly with the kit. I mean, that, that track still is like like one of my favorite kit the, tracks. The, the intro of that is called Dante, is or was called Dante. Right. But although it's all one long Mona Lisa overdrive, but that's when you were doing the kit drum. Right. The on ramp when they're getting on the freeway. Yeah, yeah. which sounds amazing. Still sounds that was amazing. A fun, but just setting up kit in there. I remember we just opened, mic'd everything and used the room. And it was just everything felt, it didn't feel like 
oh, let's try this. It felt like it was kind of being directed. And once we heard something that worked, yeah, cool, let's move on. And we didn't like, we didn't trip on stuff really, you know, we didn't spend an hour on a shaker or anything like that. We really kind of, I remember moved quickly through ideas. I think stuff. we did. Yeah. I mean, I've, if I remember rightly, I think Mona Lisa was about a month or something in getting it to get it to the point of green lighting it or. Cause your thing was all, what you would do is we, we would record these kinds of cues as songs, almost like three, four five minute pieces but then you would spend so much time of the arrangement of having to fit it to the frame and seeing what needs to hit. And that's where I think your composition was really in how you constructed these cues because nothing sounded like how we laid it, certainly like something like Navras as well. I mean, how we laid that down. I remember coming back when you spent your two weeks with it and it was just like a sculpture, you know, you took all these elements and built them in such this beautifully balanced way that that's what you do. You know? I, think I think it's that's... part of my it's part of my dyslexia that um, I, <laughs> I've got an over, overview of something, although it looks like chaos or sounds yeah. like chaos. You know, I could imagine it when I think I've got all of the bits. I know that then I can go into the linear mode. Right. And um, I see that. but I, I remember there's that really lovely bit in Mona Lisa when it really does hit the percussion. It's when the cars bang together. Right. And you really get this really great sort of percussion and orchestra all right. sort of syncopating together. <laughs> I remember that. I remember you saying something, can you play, I don't know what it would be, like 30-second note triplets at 208 beats a minute or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can certainly try, you know, but the, the way McBee had his stuff laid down, I don't know. I remember that that was like the first thing where we really got into like that kind of driving stuff. But the way he uses the Darbuka in that track too, once it's on the freeway. That was the really nice stuff, yeah. Coming in and out, I think, was so effective. It wasn't this constant thing of all these big drums underneath. It, your your bass line would carry it for a bit, you know? And I don't know. I just love the way it all kind of arranged. And it gave me a sense of how percussion can be used in those kinds of things as well. I do a lot of video game work now and it's like, it's exactly. I, I mean, we could go back now to the other stuff that you've done. Cause you've done, you know, tons and tons of films mm. working with composers and you've obviously worked with many composers in the film industry. And I was watching the bio doc that you sent me. Yeah. And you had quite a lot to say about how this, you know, now that now that so many libraries are available, you rarely get sort of people who don't really understand percussion, programming right. percussion. And you think that's a, a loss of like historical rhythms, talents. I think talent, yeah, absolutely. When you're looking at it purely as what like someone like Emil Richards, who is legendary, and not a lot of people know him. He played with Frank Zappa and Frank Sinatra and played on over 2,000 films. And his perception of what rhythm would do, like what we were just talking about, I think if you had used a traditional percussionist, which would essentially be the best Indian loop library, would be Zakir Hussain. He could, mm. Anything Indian you would want, he'd be able to do. So what I've found in a lot of film music was whenever I go in and, and play something traditional a darbuka or something and i start playing a groove they just want they want straight 16th this is but they they want it played in a way that has this aggression that doesn't work with this light finger technique you know so i think that approach of being able to take these instruments that aren't being traditionally represented like in a loop library 
it limits the, the, the palette of sound that, that a composer can use, where you can use a darbuka, but mute it and treat it in a way that it sounds nothing like a darbuka, but it has an attack that really works. And that's a creative jam session that I would always do with composers. We would try things. I'd try a nagara, but I wouldn't play it with sticks. I'd play it with my hands and put goat nails on it and do all this stuff that made it sound, you know, had nothing to do with what the instrument was called. And I think that limits composers now because they think any of these traditional drums and they only have access to them played mainly in traditional ways. And is that mainly like due to a sort of financial restrictions that they're now under, under the new budgets and Netflix and Amazon and the yeah. budgets, are, is it down to that? It's down to that. And, and where the creativity is falling now, the new film world is in video games. I've been working a lot with Sony PlayStation and I've done the la like over the last two years, about six different titles. It's the same production, music production team. So all whatever composer comes in, they'll say, oh, you got to get this guy in there. So I'm coming in and it's creative, it's in, it's experimental, it's notated. It's like everything the film business was, but these film composers are now in the video game industry because that's where the budgets and the time freedom is. You know, it takes a year and a half to, to work on it. So they don't have these constraints of times and budgets, but uh, in the film world, it doesn't, it, it's, it's rare, maybe two or three films a year. Now I do as opposed to 10 or 15 I used to do. Wow. It's that drastic. And it's because specifically they don't need my 15 Darbukas because they have a library of 115 of them, you know? So. Yeah. But I mean, I've, I've got those, I've got certain libraries myself, but it's like drum kit and you can put any old drum kit together and sort of, then they've right. got the pre rhythms that you can muck around with and generally put it down as a staple sort of, yeah, that'll work for the time being type of thing. Mm. But what I think they all lack is um, just the natural instinct of a great drummer playing on the track that will do things that a program will never really come up with especially myself i mean i've programmed a lot of drums yeah but i wouldn't really you know sometimes simplicity on these things is the the best thing sometimes but then when you say like tracks like superman perfect crime superman yeah no one would expect i remember when we were in the studio in um Ridge Farm. Yeah. And you, I think that was one of the first times you came over to England and did a session for me. Yeah, and, and we really set up everything and did kit yeah. and everything live and really just jammed and really explored together, I think, but that was the first time. And I, I remember thinking, like, if, when you first started playing, it was quite polite. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I, that. I was thinking, I was thinking <laughs> why is it this sort of, like, sounds, you know, like he's sort of really holding back. And I remember saying to you something like, Greg, just really fucking hit those drums. You said something. I'm trying to remember what it was. But, you know, honestly, it, to my ears, program drums sound polite. You don't totally. hear the... So, totally. No matter how heavy or distorted you treat it, mm. it's it's perfect. It's nice. You know, it's, it's, it's clean. It's orderly. And so I think when I would first start playing with electronic music, I would try to play, like, electronic. And you were, like, talking, no, this is, like, Bonham, like let's really oh, let's let's like bash through this in a way because it's the and attitude it, there, isn't it? It's the it's part of yeah. it. There's like it felt like there was a wall had suddenly been broken, and then the wave of sort of almost pure anger came out yeah. on a ballad, <laughs> 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 which I thought was brilliant, and yeah. um, 
And it was ferocious. And I think it's not just that you get like a sample snare and you've got someone going, oh, I've really hit it hard and it sounds really aggressive. Right. It's all of the aggression between all of the drums. All the drums, exactly right. In one go, exactly. you know, that is a really powerful thing. And it's not really to diss these libraries, I suppose. It's more that I think you get a lot more out of face-to-face. I have no judgment or critique. I don't like comparing the two any longer because I think the electronic music, like you first said, these libraries and these instruments, in the right hands, you create art. But you've been in the room with live drummers. You've been in the room with some of the best musicians in the world from all around the world and all the stuff you've done. I mean, just just the list on the matrix, but every album yeah. you've worked with Mabi, you've been inside that rhythm. So those instruments in your hands, it's like a chef that is a, you know, opens up a Chinese restaurant, but has never had Chinese food. You got to taste it. And you've, yeah. you've, I've been lucky enough. I've been lucky enough to be in those situations where it was, it was just a natural progression of events. Right. That so hit. you don't necessarily think like a drummer, you think like, a musician who plays the drums because that's what every great drummer is. is mm. you're, we're, we're very musical in that sense. You know, it's not coming from this technical, let me show you everything I can do. Mabi was one of the most musical drummers I've ever, ever heard because his patterns were, were not necessarily melodic, but it created this kind of gravitational motion that kept moving forward yeah. with his pitch choice and stuff that was so easy to play within and stuff. And, create this so i think it's more of who like any instrument it's who's playing it so for sure i I mean i just prefer it at certain times in my life i much prefer having real musicians in the room in the studio the back and talk the testing of different snares all of these things you know i mean i I think when we were at the farm we were thinking shit we really need about 20 snares or something and we had about three or something (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know so it's sort of but with um like the composers that you've worked with tyler bates was a big Mm -hmm. one that you worked with for quite a long time yeah Tyler Bates, I've worked with uh, Bear McCreary now, uh, Stevie Blonsky. I mean, so many of of the biggest uh, were their one-offs when I do them. But like I said, it's been now about five or six years since I've really been in that loop any longer. So, uh, And is Tyler Bates still working in that? Is he still doing that? Yeah, Tyler's doing a lot of production now, too. He just produced an album with Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains. He had gone on tour with Manson. Alice in Chains were recording... In the Paramore, remember? Yeah, yeah. When at the back end of uh, Re- Reloaded, That's they right. took over MySpace and I went into post-production in a much smaller room and they kept on... Oh, the- that's right. That, yeah, that back room when we went back in there. That's where we did uh, the Burly Brawl, I think. We did that there. The never-ending Burly Brawl. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Ty, I, all these guys... Oh, Alexander Despot is another one of the composers that I worked with who did Argo, and uh, but he did Tree of Life. He's a... Uh, the Mr. Fox, fabulous Mr. Fox, that one. Okay, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful composer and was nominated for best score for Argo. And so each of these guys, I mean, they all have their their way. Like someone like Tyler would be, I've worked with him since since so early on, but when we were working on 300, we didn't really have picture because everything was done on the green screen and Zack Snyder was in Canada shooting all the stuff. So we had about a year to work on that score. So he would get, footage every few months so i just go down and do a few shakers for him and then 
come back a couple of days later, go lay down some frame drum or something and just really had time to explore it. Uh, but he was always kind of thing like, give me a click track and a drone and do what I feel kind of thing. Someone like Alexander Desplat have everything notated, but they know the instrument. So they'll write the proper rhythm for a frame drum or the proper rhythm for a darbuka. They get the difference, wow. you know? So it's a real pleasure to work with those composers that that really understand. I love his scores. You know, Beautiful generally scores. I'm sort of like, my ears will prick up on on his stuff and go, wow, that's really cool. Because a lot of the time you're going, oh God, the washing machine's on, you know, yeah. with the orchestra. If, but his stuff the is score, really good. Which I think the scores of films who, for nominations should be judged on the album, the soundtrack, not the watching the film. I think you can see oh, no, how a score I, I works within a film. I'm not sure if I agree with you. Well, I, I'm saying it because of specifically of this, the score of Argo, when you listen to the score on the soundtrack, mm. it's some of the most exquisite music, film music okay. I've ever heard. In the movie, it's mixed, he was furious. It's mixed so low in the film okay. that you literally barely hear anything. And, and it's a real, for him, it was frustrating because he was up against Life of Pi, which had these big open three-minute montages of visuals where the orchestra could just soar. And he was competing with, with all this other components. And if you're a fan of Alexandra, then I, I, I highly recommend it. And even all the Santour that you hear is actually me playing hammered dulcimer. Oh wow! <laughs> I had, uh, I kept seeing it in the score because we did, we had three days at Capitol record studio just to do percussion he has that kind of clout here you know and and so he wanted all the the, the world and ethnic percussion laid down before the orchestra so they would be able to play to it and so it was really just these beautiful sessions he has perfect pitch he hands writes his scores conducts his orchestras but we had three days of really diving in with also an iranian percussionist that came in for a day and uh so i kept seeing all these hammer dulcimer cues in the score folder and uh, and I saw these things that I could pretty much play. And I said, you know, I, I have a hammer dulcimer if you want me to lay this down. He's like, oh, I haven't found a Santor player yet. Can you do it? I said, yeah, sure, let's let's try it. So all the Santor here in the field is actually me with a, a, a Persian-tuned hammer dulcimer. <laughs> wow, because I remember you were playing that in Vaz. Vaz was yeah. your previous band. Right. That I think and, when, when I first met you, you still, you and Azam were still Vaz. Right. You hadn't sort of split your affiliations at that point. No, we were still had a couple albums, I think, ahead of us at that point. So, yeah, we were we were still right in it. And, and she was were, one. She mainly played Hammer Dulcimer, but that's where I picked it up and started learning it. And that was very much like, I mean, every musician has a, a love of another band or another artist. And it felt like you had a real love of Dead Can Dance at that time. Yeah, I, I think that came more from her. I had a real love. I was just discovering percussion. I'd only literally been playing hand percussion maybe about three years by the time of the first Voss record. It was really something I was I was exploring. I was doing a lot of commercial scoring. And so I had my ADATs and I had like, you know, just 16 tracks that were, you know, infinite at that time to mm. me of just layering different tones and 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 composing with them and stuff. So I had all these percussion beds laid out when I met Azam and she came in and sang in her wordless language. She was really influenced by, by Dead Can Dance quite a bit, like really, really into them. 
I had never heard them until I met her. So it wasn't okay. an influence of, of what I was doing with percussion was really being influenced by the traditional stuff of really listening to a lot of North and South India, North and South African, uh, a lot of gamelan music, a lot of Indonesian and, and Eastern Asian music. So were you inspired by people like Ginger Baker? Oh, yeah. I mean, drum set players specifically, but I wasn't coming. I wasn't trying to incorporate drum set into my percussion at that point. When I got into percussion, it was I didn't touch my kit for about five years. I was all percussion. And I was developing a, a legitimate technique that I knew I was going to be playing with some of the best artists. So I couldn't be, you know, a novelty tabla player, a novelty frame drummer. So I had to find something of my drum set playing and incorporate it into this percussion. And that's how I developed the kit that I play, the yeah. Darbuka and Udu and frame drum together. So I'm still thinking like kit, it's still my native language. So you don't hear my accent, you know, it's not yeah. like I'm trying to do something So were you else. coming in from the sort of punk rock sort of area as well? Uh, yeah, and hard rock stuff too. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it really, that, uh, that energy of the kit, I really wanted to generate not from four limbs, but, you know, eight fingers going on these, smaller drums and i just found a way when i could play it horizontally it really gave me that kind of power so voss really helped me establish that kind of feel so i think azam singing in her own language and her range of voice certainly being influenced by lisa gerard that kind of got that attachment to it but for me i was i really wanted to get much more of a traditional feel of the and the first three albums are all well all the albums have all acoustic percussion well, one of our philosophical splits is that she wanted to bring in more electronic percussion and it wasn't so much that I was like no I'm a purist it's like but I do that so I can create loops I can create that feel if you mm -hmm. but at that time of we had a couple tracks remixed and that's when she met Carmine Rizzo and she then basically did Voss with electronics and that's then started Niaz and stuff but I just went deeper into it and I found ways of I, I don't think if I started incorporating that became an electronic producer in any way, I don't think that would have led me to you. The same way if I learned tabla, it wouldn't have led me to Zakir Hussein. I can play with him yeah. because I don't play it tabla, you know? I think it's quite good to be a purist. And I, I think with electronic music, with the way that it's going, I mean, my ears are he heading off to real players at the moment, or not when I say real players, acoustic players. I don't know why. I don't know why my head's going in that direction because I'm more likely to end up with a thumping techno album or something like that. But, <laughs> you know, but I think the respite or the... I hear what's going on in electronic music now and it's sort of... I appreciate it. I appreciate the sound of it. And whether it's from hip-hop or from, like, grime or, you know, some techno tracks... Even right. there are even a few good side trance tracks. Yeah. You know, I agree. but but there aren't many because everyone's copying each other and they're looking to jump up the tree by copying them and they think, well, if I do a slightly better version then people will appreciate it. But actually, no, I don't think so. I think there's so few new ideas entering the electronic space. There's great new plugins there's great new technologies that's allowing us to analyze and pinpoint a fart in this sort of spectrum and sort of you know all the 3d space right but i don't hear like you know really great ideas that's the only thing that i'm really missing I, i'm with you on that that's i think that really is it it's like 
I try to imagine like what that phase of your career when you met Mabi, like what your music would have sounded like if you hadn't met Mabi, if you hadn't found someone like that. Not so much that he defines it, but he became an instrument. Oh, for I think you. yeah, and, I, th- and then, I think uh, Mabi changed the trajectory of of Juno Reactor by suddenly I went, wow, yeah, this, you know, because all my head and my landscapes were in space and sort of in this sort of like fantasy space land. And then it just immediately brought it all right down to earth again. Mm. And I felt the power of it in the studio and it totally changed a lot of my thinking almost immediately. I mean, to me, percussionists before Mabi were generally the ones that I saw, which were white guys playing bongos or or, or congas, yeah? And it right. felt, and I thought I was watching a seal sort of going through a performance where you're going, what's that guy doing in the band? He does nothing. You know, I was in a band called Brilliant and there was this guy called Chester who was playing percussion. He couldn't play percussion. He was just, it's just like a slappy, slappy seal, you know, like right. some <laughs> shitty little groove that doesn't do anything and he's standing there for an hour and a half doing it. And it wasn't until Mabee that I suddenly realized all of the joy, the fun, the playing of games, the rhythmic offsets and all that stuff that came into it. And so yeah. he taught me everything. But then you had a really amazing relationship with Mabee as well, because I remember mm. when he did come over, you and him were very much glued together <laughs> in um, Matrix yeah. Revolutions. Yeah, that was... Uh, we first met... I was sitting on the tennis court out of the church at Dave Stewart's <laughs> studio out in Encino there at the church. And yeah. I had got, he had just arrived the night before. So I came out that morning. I remember he was out there sitting, we came out and they just immediately hugged each other. I had my Udu and he had something and we just started playing immediately. It was just, mm. that's how we said hello. But I think, you know, I look back now and I kind of get chills and it's, it's still incredibly emotional for me of, of, you know, I accept death and loss and cycle of life. It's not mourning a death or a person, but it really is is appreciating the level of awareness and wisdom that he gave me. And what you're referring to, I think we had the time at the church as well, but when, then we had the time, was it for Gods and Monsters when we were there for two weeks at Ridge Farm and, and him and I stayed at the, at the studio pretty much at the farm? I think so, yeah. And then we also had the Brave Story film score. Brave Story, yeah. So it was Brave something Story. in there during that time. But I remember that we had about two weeks together out at the farm. I'm so proud of myself for recognizing that opportunity, you know, because I usually would come back to Brighton with you and I'd stay at your place in Brighton and have that more more of that experience. But I was sleeping on okay. the floor in the studio and and with Mabi and he could be up on his loft back there on his little <laughs> mattress but we'd take walks after working after you'd leave or something like, you know, two or three in the morning around those grounds and the energy and the power. And he would just start like telepathically download stuff with me. I saw him as, as the medicine, as a shaman, you know, and I knew there was no other time I was going to have that time with someone like him. And in those two weeks, he, he redesigned my whole universe of what I thought rhythm was and realized the, deeper responsibility of it too because he never preached it like that he never played the role of like he was a clown he was charlie chaplin you know he, he was, was like charlie this complete, chaplin, yeah. just you know clown wizard of of but man he when he used that look on his face when he was in a groove and and yeah. it's and enjoying it Sometimes yeah. he would fall asleep a bit, wouldn't he? <laughs> like right. when he was really tired, he would like, I'd have to go, my bee, my bee, wake up. Yeah. Go, 
and get back on it. I remember that time when we were in, in Japan when we filmed the, the, the DVD. The rest of the three other Pondos left. They had to go back and we had one more festival gig in Nagisa or something, right? By the, the Fuji it, TV yeah. thing, yeah. Yeah. And so Mbi stayed on for five more days to do that gig, but the rest of the Pondos went back. And by the time I remember driving to the gig, it was like E.T. withering away. Like he had, didn't have his family around him. He hadn't played for five days, but he didn't have that energy of the tribe around him. And within five minutes of him getting on his drums and we started playing, it was just like, boom, he was right there again. You know, he was he was a powerful soul that I think really had this image of a chameleon that you never really saw who he was. And he gave me those. What did you learn from his sort of African style that you didn't think you had previous to that? I think maybe it was connected to what you were saying of the white boy drummer up there slapping around like a seal. Like I never wanted to be that. So at that point, it's not about what you play or how you play. The guys we're talking about, Zaki Hussein, Ayerto, you know, Giovanni Hidalgo, I mean, Mabi. They play like that. Drummers have that. It's a different connection. So when I play, if I'm doing a bar gig or a Juno gig in front of 40,000 people or a film date that's all stressed, I bring the same thing to it because of what Mabee showed me. I just think in that age, during that time, when that shift of, okay, we've got to accept the technology's taking over. It's And it, I stopped the fight. I stopped the battle. But I just needed to know, is what I feel real? And he showed me that it was. He gave me that wisdom that indeed what you're feeling is real, so don't lose it. Mm. What I loved about it when we were playing live and you spoke about telepathy and there was like within that band with like, um, especially start, I think that was the best gig we ever did, which was the Japan live audio yeah. experience, whatever, yeah. you know, we were always trying to catch up with that. We never really got back to that point, but it still didn't obliterate the thing of there was a telepathy where you and me, we could look at each other and yeah. you knew that we were going to change rhythm, right. that we'd then go, we'd step it up gear. Or I think with Mabi, Mabi was like so in the groove that sometimes you had to wake him up. But everything, it felt like we were just a reaction. And it worked quite mm. well with the idea of the band or the name of the band. But it's, you don't you don't think about it, you just react to it. And that was when I think we were at our best is when we just react to anything that happens. You know, the computer breaks down or we yeah. stop the computer and everyone knows we're going to go somewhere. It's not like, it's, you know, not like in, say, like previous bands where someone had gone, what the fuck happened? You know, right. it's like, boom, go with, the, go with that moment. And that's, that's what right. I really loved about the show, that it was, it was like that and it was capable of holding that and holding the audience like that, whether it was Squid or Taz, you know, I'd make horrible demands on Taz and say, sing, <laughs> sing something, Taz. And she'd be going, what the fuck do I sing? But she was just like, she could jump in, in there as well and just be really brilliant. So I think we were quite lucky in that period. It's interesting. I, I, I like the word you use as reaction. I think that's a distinction between improvisation and reaction. We were never improvising, though we had a lot of improvisational moments. What, what improvisation up. is real, true improvisation? Because, you know, I'm sure Dizzy Gillespie was playing all of those same sort of licks right. every day, in and out, in his breakfast, you know, at dinner. Sure. And, 
he knew those lines. He knew everything. So it wasn't really improvisation. It was a collection of knowledge that he already had acquired that he then put Almost together. Almost like collage work in a way of, yeah, just putting pieces together. I think that is improvisation, of, isn't it? I'm thinking of it more from a place of, even if there's a, a chord progression that somebody's soloing over, or for a drum solo where everybody drops out and you play, where you're really creating something where it's not that. You're going to go into a space you haven't gone to and paint yourself into a corner and get yourself out. That to me is improvisation of where it's relying on what you know done in a way you've never done it before. But reaction, I like. What you're saying is reaction. And that's yeah. that's what I really, really enjoyed is that we still had to be on our toes like a good improviser. But you just pull every all the faders down sometimes and, and electronic would disappear. And it's me and the Pondos. And there wasn't a blink of an eye. We knew exactly what to do, you yeah. know, and and then how you'd bring it back in. And I, I don't know that that reaction part. I really I, I miss that. I miss reacting to to the musicians. around. I remember me. when we first had Steve, he turns up to this show and I said, yeah, it'd be great if you play. So he brought his guitar and I plugged, I plugged him into a Zoom, into a little, a little Zoom rack. Right. It was a piece of shit. And um, so Steve, <laughs> and st this is what's, what I love about Steve as well is he didn't, he didn't go, oh God, I need my Marshall. I need right. my, he just went with it. Yeah. And then I had him into my mixing desk and I was sort of, he'd like be doing these runs and I'd go, boop. <laughs> I, I would just like pull his fader down and he'd still be playing, but he'd look at me going, what the fuck happened? And then oh, I think hilarious. then he got the, then he knew what he was doing. So he would just play and That's I great. would like fade him in when I thought, so it's because it's electronic gig. You can't have a rock God playing over everything, which they used to doing yeah so right, you, exactly. you're sort of live mixing him so he'd carry on playing and i'd be listening to what he was on the headphones and go boom yeah let's go with that and yeah. and spin it but i think he was quite shocked with this very free form attitude which i think mm. the pondos were really quite instrumental in doing that like when we did the moby tour we hadn't got a clue what we were going to do right. or mainly because i the the European band didn't want to do it, blah, blah, blah. So when we got into rehearsal, we we could just fake it. We knew we could mm. fake a few gigs, but then it all, the magic started to appear, you know, with Mabi or whatever and the performances and all of this stuff. But I think around that time, the 2006, 2007, 2008, the real magic happened on stage. <laughs>
I was convinced. I thought, wow, this thing is so alive. Yeah. How come it's not like sort of really blossomed? I think it's mainly because I fucked up by doing Gods and Monsters, actually, and like the Juno fans really not yeah. digging it, you know? I should have but just done the typical Juno album and everyone might have gone, yeah, this is it. I think, you know, that was a time that the business and the market was totally shifting during that time. Like YouTube started in 2007. You know what I mean? This is we're we're, we're not that far in to the real like, you know, the, the, the forms we're in now of streaming platforms, of anything, yeah. of social media on this level. I remember so, doing shows where we would get like on electronic festivals like Azora. There were these guys sh throwing a shoe at my bee. Yeah. And stuff. And you go, what the fuck? You know, like, <laughs> or like, or you go through fucking Germany and like I was on tour with Lieback. Yeah. Which sort of have a bit of right wing leaning and like we'd come on stage after Lieback and 75% of the audience would leave the room. Right. 75% right. because they did not want to see what we were presenting, which was a very, sort of world vision underneath the skin, you know, fuck the skin. And, uh, but they, they couldn't take it. And I think some audiences at that time couldn't take it. Whereas I think now, if you went into the electronic arena with that same show, it mm -hmm. would be much more recognized for what it was. I think so too. And I think we talked about it being also the market just stopped doing it as well like budget start it was an expensive project to bring together for you you know so to get yeah. that kind of budget up front for a, a, a band like this it was that was all shifting as well well yeah i think also the only reason we could do it when we did do it was because i didn't need to pay myself That's because right. i had the film stuff right so it was always like you know working out pennies and pounds to get that show you know i spent three months yeah. on on like a handful of dates, you know, right, just know. to do Europe. And if had it been like a, a, a another Juno album and not didn't really challenge the listener, I think that was a time too where audiences start were, were becoming very very complacent of just like not wanting to be challenged. Just just give just give it to me, you know. I don't want to have to think. I don't want like so. The artist could still create something, but I think once a challenge, once you had to make sense, and it was a challenging set if. You just wanted to be fed, like, you know, subwoofer bass, like DJ stuff, you know, and not experimental challenge. But I just think it's like they just wanted this kind of fast food mentality almost. And, and you're yeah. giving them something nutritious. And it's like I sort of get quite frustrated sometimes when I think about players that I know that are really top of their game players. And they're doing shows for pretty much peanuts. Yeah. And you get a DJ going out there, you know, and it's like, whoa, yeah, big, impressive, everything. You know, they touch a knob and it's £160,000 in their pocket. Yeah. You know, exactly. it's just so fucking bizarre. And it's quite sickening, really. But that's the way of the world, you know. That's it. And, and like I said, it's not at this point, I've, I'm over my, you know, <laughs> the real anger towards it and the frustration of, of it all. But at this point, it really... To me, it's just the lack of access we have to any of the real stuff. It's not a judgment or critique about it. I fully accept the world we're in. So I'm, I'm a purist in a sense of what moves me. But in terms of what I make my living at, I mean, I haven't, you know, every single thing I do is on a click track. And luckily, I can play to a click track. So I keep working because mm. if you don't, you don't. Show us some of the instruments that you've actually got hanging around you now that you think would be quite interesting. 
Yeah, well, the one I have that I just is the one I have to start with is the Udu from. Uh, uh, yeah, let's hear some the of that. Navras, mm. The Navras Udu. And, and this this drum, I just still remember like that rhythm when you started playing your bass line. I remember you just had me and B just start playing to it, you know? And I remember this was like. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, so, so the bass tone, yeah. so there's a hole on top. Yeah. So you hit that, and that pushes the air out. So that's where you get the sound. But yeah. The skin allows you to bend the sound. Very nice. Yeah, it's a wonderful and so that instrument. Pattern you use then as kind of the like that whole middle breakdown of that when it, the whole thing breaks out. Yeah, yeah, Breaks yeah. out to just this. Boom. And I just love that, like in the midst of the whole Matrix franchise. CGI, the score, the orchestra, like all this stuff. There's actually one spot in that movie where you hear this, <laughs> where you hear just a clay pot, you know? And it's just like the way you use that. And then the frame drum came in, right? And then the drums kick back in. And Deepak on the flute and everything, and Mabi doing his shaker. Have you got ones with snares on the back as well? There is one. Yeah, it's called the Bendir. It's not a. It's not in the studio. But yeah, it has just okay. Yeah, yeah I love. The, I back. love, yeah. love, love the frame drum, and I love your playing of the frame drum. Yeah, yeah, and then the Chan Chans. We use this in, in uh, on Reloaded <laughs> I've got, during. I've, I've got the. I've got the same ones. I think you I got think, these, right? Yeah. I think you or Azam, you or Azam gave me them, gave them to me. We use them on Monsters a lot too. I think. Uh, yeah, but, a lot. I think we used them on pretty much every track. Yeah. Yeah. So all these kinds of instruments, like a Balinese Chan Chan, is used with a gamelan orchestra. Mm. If if you had an Indonesian play the Chan Chan, he would be playing it as if he's playing it with the Balinese orchestra. To me, I play it like this real industrial hi-hat almost. You yeah, know? Yeah. So I have a different vocabulary, but I'm still playing it with the effect it's meant to have. Well, also that Chan Chan can do so many different tones, can't it? It's got... Yeah. Even on uh, on Gods and Monsters, I think I played a lot with sticks, which I hadn't really done, and you you actually encouraged that. So with the sticks, you can. Like that kind of vibe. And then with. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that you can do with this of, of mm. how to do it just on this one instrument. So it's amazing. Yeah. A, yeah. So that's, you, you really encourage that. I think on this, well, all the stuff we've done, but you're hearing them as sounds. You're not what's hearing that them as long like thing. What's that long thing behind you? Is that a decoration or is that an instrument? So there's a couple of these, they have them in different sizes. Oh, wow. Are they, and so these, uh, let me find a mallet to play them with. Uh, so 
with the small ones, you these are from uh, from Ghana. But the big one, which I use a lot, is. And this one, when you play it on the ground, you get a really cool kind of. Wow, that's nice. So, huh? yeah. I mean, I'd like to put that through some effects, actually. Well, what you do, that's meant to be played outside, like around a fire with dirt and dried leaves. So when you put the dried leaves underneath, it's like a foot high hat. So you get that. It's a really, really cool thing. So I've still got the snare from um, Mabi. Did you go off to the junkyard with Mabi to pick up metal stuff? No, I never made that journey with him. Because, yeah, I still got it. I still got the sheet of metal that. Oh, yeah, I remember that, yeah. From the snare. It's really great. It's it's better than the electronic ones. It's fascinating. Anything, because that's what, I think when it was, we were doing Navras that we then experimented with a lot of different metal hits and stuff like that, car tires and... Brakes as well, met, break, yeah. break, the brake break drums and stuff. And, yeah. Yeah. Now that, that was really, uh, yeah, luck, that's luxury, isn't it? It's luxury sort of musical life, all of that stuff. Well, just that time you had at Ridge Farm, I just think of what, uh, talk about like an opportunity that you took advantage of. I mean, that's amazing that you had access and that you, you were able to pull that off for that long to be there, you know? Mm, I was there for five years, but yeah, it's funny how, how there's a good time to do certain things in certain places as well. But which films have you most enjoyed working on then in the past, you know, since Matrix and... The experience has diminished for consistently, you know, each each year it, you would have less and less of the experience being part of it. It was really the job. And, and you know, we got this studio for a day or you're going to play this part or, you know, send it to me at home and I'll do it here. There wasn't the, that 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 creative kind of, you know, think tank really started diminishing in like after 2010. So. You know, working on Argo was incredible, like I said, just to have that long with a composer of that level to just work on on percussion in a place like Capitol. I mean, that, that was just incredible, you know. Mm. But our experience with Matrix, everything like that, that kind of coming from a place of musicians, not really film composers in that way mm. of, of really knowing how far we can take something, that was really great. You know, with Tyler, we've had some ensemble things. I, I, as I'm thinking, pretty much all the best experiences when there's more than just me when it's not just me layering my stuff and doing it, that's fun and everything. And, but I really enjoy when you're working with a few people and, and then these ideas start morphing like a great, you get the same thing happening with like the video games. Video games are just me that no, it, it, it's a solo show. And so I, but I think there's an appreciation for what I bring to it because a lot of these guys haven't worked with these sounds before. So if they see a frame drum and they, they, they would just think a frame drum is those two sounds and I can come in and I and then you get, yeah. you know, you, yeah, know nice. you get all these different textures. Then the next time I come in, they write with those things in mind. So their, their, their sound is expanding. And that's, so that's satisfying. And that's, it's fun to be an influence. My live stuff is a whole different thing. If I go to any experience, 
that I would share as being the ultimate. I don't think the top five would be a studio experience. Everything, everything is live on that level of. And have you ever thought of like getting a bunch of percussionists and players together and sort of doing a ginger Baker style? I think it's something that I would love to do. I think again, all, the last two years have, have thrown all of my kind of, optimistic plans off you know i was working on a documentary that was going to be going into production that summer in india i was going to go back during 2020 and that got canceled and i think i'm just still resetting from that but i i i would i was just kind of feeling this the other day of really wanting to get that kind of thing back into it a new version of what that kind of planet drum would be and and so yeah, that's something that, of course I'd want to do. I think that's where if I wanted to spend any time on my own stuff, I want to spend it more generating live experience than than recording another album, you know. And the time that you spent in India, that must have been a massive influence on you as well, huh? Yeah, influence. I mean, for <laughs> 25 years I've been going, but I was there at the beginning of 2020. I was there for two months from January to March, and I had about like 25 gigs during that time, like every few days, it would be something. I was working with schools and going into the slums and working with musicians and playing with Zakir Hussein and this elite thing. I had all the range of it. Wow. But that country is just, as you know, I mean, if it hits you and you're open to it, man, there's no place like it in the world. And uh, I think musically, I came back right before lockdown, just literally four days before the beginning of March after two months of playing at that level. And I was like an Olympic <laughs> athlete. I was just like, just peaking, you know, <laughs> and then just, it just stopped. So that was that, that country really does influence me on a lot of levels. How'd you find that transition from like India to LA? So when I got back after the two months there, I was doing solo gigs there. I was doing a 45 minute set, just myself and percussion as a musical experience, not as a drum clinic or a solo and stuff like part like that is the concert. That is the act mm. and the appreciation and the commitment to what I would be doing was just incredible. So I came back and I had some gig here in downtown LA just a few days before lockdown at a place called Wisdom. So it's a geodesic dome and it's mostly DJs and electronics. So I get up there thinking I'm going to be doing, I'm, <laughs> I had just literally a week back from India on that level. And I just jump in and start going and people were just like, not, they, they didn't get it at all. So the sound in there is atrocious. It is. And, and I think it's just that value. There's no value to it. That's really what it is. So uh. I'm very aware of where I spend it now. If, if it doesn't have a good conversion rate, you know, like the rupee outside of India is nothing. But in India, it's a very valuable currency, you know. Yeah. And I think what I bring back to these, when I just did a gig at, for Iranian New Year's with a big group of Persian artists, and that community as well is really appreciative of what I do in terms of they know I'm not a student of their music, but they know I, I, I could only play the way I do in it if I respected it on the same level. The things I've seen and heard from Iran are just so amazing, so beautiful. And especially the artist that has that kind of appreciation and respect for the culture. I think a lot of these cultures, you can look at, at the politics and maybe the, the you know humanitarian side of things like any country, and it's appalling on some levels, you know, India as well. But I think what these countries have are, is the ability to distinguish their legacy of art and culture as something other than their legacy of politics and power. You know, I, I, I really feel there's a, there with 
the Persian audiences I play for with going to India, the, the, the audience still reveres the artist. The audience still really respects what the artist is, what the real artist is doing. And I've had that experience never in America in that way. And you get it there in a way that's just really powerful. And I think that's why you get that level of artist in these countries that are just levitating when they play sometimes. We were working on revolutions and then you got a show put together and you said, Deepak, maybe do you want to do it or something like right. that? Yeah. Yeah. Cause we were only, I think all together for like a couple of weeks or something. And there was this really great jazz club called Rocco's in Hollywood at the time. That How long was Deepak there for? Deepak may have only been, I don't think longer than probably four or five days. I don't think it was long. Oh, it felt longer. He felt like he came into the sort of family that was there and just fitted in like a ghost, you know, that came alive because he just felt so natural in that environment. Yeah, he really did. I, I remember the moments on the porch outside the studio of just talking and, and him playing and stuff. I just, he, what a beautiful person. And I, but I think I, we booked a gig before he had got there. I think you had said, well, maybe Deepak could do it as well and stuff. And I think I booked it with me and Mabi. And then once Deepak was there and we had this connection, the gig was like the next day or something like that. I think he jumped right into that. We didn't rehearse or anything, but uh, that was really beautiful because that was just like, I was, I was still really fresh in terms of my live presentation of what I do. In the studio, I had it down. I had done so many films, so I could layer myself 30 times and hear, you know, create all kinds of things. But to do it live, I was still really apprehensive of, of not having that technique traditionally. And putting myself out there like that. So I, I, Mabi, do the gig with me. You know, it's a Mabi could carry it. But, uh, and then with him and Deepak, but I was so amazed at how him and Deepak connected. That's what it was really, what you'll see on in the footage is that, okay. you know, of course, Mabi and I and stuff, and then my kind of understanding of Indian music, but there's moments where Deepak is doing the Kona call, which is the, the you know, the vocal tabla. And Mabi is doing this, he's doing his whole thing too. And you see this blend of cultures that are just, it's, it's really amazing.
I just remember loving how delicate, because obviously the Juno thing is a bit bombastic <laughs> and it's like pedal to the metal a lot of the time. Yeah. And yeah. to see the reverse of that, which actually is sort of an in, in an area where I'm quite interested in now, you know, far more... I'm far more interested in creating the space and the three-dimensional space rather than the going for the punch mm. at the moment. But um, it's a shame I didn't have any of Mabee's really super delicate stuff down because it yeah it was really delicate, wasn't it? Yeah, and I did a recording here. I got him here. Um, Mabee had told him about the recordings we had done here at my studio, and. I hear I, I do have a session of that as well. It's it's really kind of a bit meandering and stuff. And I just think had an engineer been there, it would have been incredible because I was trying to mic things up and trying to get Mabee to do something again. And it's like, you know, none of that was working. It's hard to concentrate when you're <laughs> it's it's a weird thing because that whole thing of miking things up and checking the sound and making sure nothing's <sighs> very distorting or whatever. And then you've got to make, you know, then thinking, what are they actually doing? Right. How is that going to react to it? It is a funny thing, that whole sort of malaise of thoughts. and and um, But I think it's only just through a process of doing it tons of times you get used to it. Right. I remember you, you and Mabee did that thing called The Bridge that, again, was quite delicate. It was for that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, oh, right. I think I've still got it somewhere. Oh, I'd love to hear that. That was beautiful. I but there was other that. things yeah. that we did that we never released, like that 5-4 track. That's right. Wow. I have a CD of the, of the original board mixes before I left. You gave it to me. And it's like before all the, you know, you went in and, and started like, you know, doing your thing and stuff. But just it, it really sounded like a band. It really sounded like this kind of like we got in the studio and played because we did, you know. Well, I was really into that. What was that track, that Led Zeppelin track that's in 5-4? Five, 5-6. Four. Five, Four six five six. Oh no, no four sticks is a different one. Yeah, that's in five. That that's the five. one. That's the one that I was already into at the time. Yeah. So we did something that was sort of similar that. That's right. to that, and I don't think I've ever finished it because it just didn't ever feel like there was. It was the right time to put something like that out because I think God, let's finish it now man let's start with a couple of these if you have them. seriously <laughs> yeah. like, that would be amazing if we have those things recorded and we can finesse that stuff I'd love I mean I wonder what stage it's at it's in the vaults in the cooker yeah and um, maybe it's time to bring it out and see whether it's uh, cooked <laughs> How it's marinated. <laughs> it could be a fine vintage or it could be moldy as hell, man. It could be, yeah. I know Sagizo's playing on it. And he oh, that's right, yeah. He didn't play on many at that time. Yeah. I mean, there was things like Pretty Girl. And I, I mean, I really loved things like, what was it? Immaculate Crucifixion.
still one of my favorite Juno tracks of all time. That, yeah. uh, and one we never were able to, we, some reason we never did it live, but that was, that to me was the one I remember when we listened back to that in the control room when we tracked it, I had a glimpse of like, that could be the future of this kind of sound. Like there's yeah. just the bombasticness, but then that real tight electronic side, you know, and the big, that long ass build. Like, I've done that with people too at jabs where they think I'm going 16 bars. Like, no, I go to 128 <laughs> bars. <man. laughs> this is, trust me, this will yeah, pay off. This will work. <laughs> yeah. No, that was really cool. Although the fan, the Juno fans at the time didn't really like that album. I think there's a number yeah. of them that had gone back to it and gone, well, actually, that's, you know, like I remember one guy said to me, oh, you know, when I heard Gods and Monsters, I hated it. Yeah. But then I had a daughter and then I listened to Pretty Girl. And then he said, I, I loved it so much. He then went back through the whole album and yeah. realized it wasn't a piece of shit that he thought it yeah. was. No, um, it's, it's, it is. I actually just can't. I, I kind of checked it out. Probably, oh, probably it was right after Mabee passed. I think I, I was I was listening to a couple of tracks and just went down, spent a couple hours listening to stuff. And and did the whole album top to bottom as well. And and it, like I said, it's it's bold. And, and it's not this idea when someone says bold, they think genius. It's like it, you were all you were doing was expanding your palette in such a way that you were bold enough to like try it and put it out there, you know. But oh, stupid. It's a very eclectic yeah. record, you know. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I, I remember sort of seeing like after Labyrinth, you you know, I was making the mistake of reading some of the reviews and things like that. Right, right. And people would say, uh, Juno Reactor with his typically epic sound. Right. And I thought, oh, is it is it always epic? You know, maybe it is. And yeah. I thought, well, you know, let's let's just throw a curveball on this and see what happens. And see if Well, you threw a knuckleball, man. <laughs> you threw beyond a curveball. You threw a googly fan. <laughs> you know, I think it was like then and I did albums like Golden Sun of the Great East, people going, Hey, Juno's back, Juno's yeah. back. Or yeah. with the last album, hey, Juno's back. And it's like, okay, you want me to be this um this thing that just remains rigid in my little pigeonhole and I'll be that. But I think what I've always loved about the project is that when new people come in or people come back in, it's got like fresh blood and that influences mm. the music. I mean, I think that's maybe why I'm really like through COVID and everything and the introspection of being in, in this room, like pretty much all my life. Right. You know, you go through different states of um, mental, whatever they are, but I went through something. And I found it incredibly introspective. And so I'm really ready to uh, jump out of the introspection. Yeah, I feel and, you, man. And I, I, I really relate to that. I think a lot of us relate to that, certainly in the collective sense. But I know exactly, specifically, I know what you mean. And that, uh, yeah, I was just thinking like how, and I, I'm, I'm going to compare it to artists that aren't, I'm not comparing on terms of any kind of, you know, iconic level or anything necessarily, but someone like a Miles Davis who, never reinvented himself he just re he always just surrounded himself with fresh musicians you know so miles will play the same on bitches brew that he in the same way that he could have played on milestones but it's a totally different sound because of who he's surrounding himself with. yeah, yeah. he was always clear about that of bringing that fresh energy in you know and in jazz it's usually young guys that they bring in because the young guys haven't you know just 
been doing it for so long that there's any kind of jadedness. But what you did, what I see now in perspective, looking back at like 20 some odd years of how it's all been for you, I feel like one of Miles' musicians in that way. Like I'm really grateful I had that, I was in that phase of it, you know? Looking at like the whole kind of Juno reactor thing, when somebody says like, oh, Juno's reactor's back. Like to me, that's usually only said with artists that, it's never reinventing themselves, but it's always like, how far can I take this? Let me see what this works. And so if you consciously pull it back for your fans. I think it's the know, sound. I think they just like that sort of more electronic side of things, which is cool. That's all right. But, but because it's, it's really good electronic stuff too. You know what I mean? They weren't, they, you're not getting that really anywhere else. It's very distinct. But then this other world vision you brought into, it was also very distinct that didn't yeah. necessarily give that all the time. So I mean, it's been really weird because I'd love to play back in America, you know, and, and God, I, know. I, I get offered shows, but like a DJ show here or a DJ show there. And it's you just can't make it work. But and I've for many years, I've been trying to get a band shows back into America, mm. but they make it so difficult for you. They do. I know. <laughs> I know. <It's- laughs> and uh, so that's why it hasn't happened. But I'm always I'm always looking, you know, it'd be amazing to do an American show. I know I've been having this sort of like an alternative project I'd really like to do that's very much more metal orientated. Oh, wow. Cool. But um, whether that happens, I doubt it will ever happen, but it's just one of my little fantasy bands that yeah, I right. keep off in my head. I've got the name and the T-shirt, but not the uh, energy to run it. So th- yeah. thanks a lot for coming on, Greg, and it's really nice to see you. Yeah, I think it's been really nice. And I hope we get to do some new things in the future. I hope so, and, too. And, um, yeah. yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Delivering part of it and just the whole Juno world all this time has just been fantastic. So, yeah, let's uh, let's reconnect and keep it going, man. Good to see you. Nice one. Thanks, Greg, for coming along on the last of this series of Inside the Juno Reactor. And I'd like to thank all of you for listening, for coming along, making comments, having a laugh, and getting to know some of you. It does make me think a lot about how special everyone that's come inside Juno Reactor has been, and how much they've sort of put into it, progressed the project, kept the blood flowing. It's very special. And I'd like to thank Marrow at Kenji Productions for producing these shows. And I hope you join us once again inside the Juno Reactor.